Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information about our church, visit therockonline.org. And now a message from The Rock of Gainesville. A big thank you to Pastor George and Pastor Suzanne for entrusting me this opportunity to open up God's Word and share it with you guys. I love God's Word, and I hope that you love God's Word. And if you don't know God's Word today, I pray that you would know it a little bit better today and that you would realize and see why we have gathered here to sit under the preaching and teaching of God's Word. It is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we're grateful today for this opportunity to open up God's Word. So here's how I want to start. I want to conduct a little survey uh, kind of like a silent survey. So basically, I want you to respond in your head, not necessarily out loud. But true or false, here's the statement for you. Worrying is an uncontrollable part of life, and it simply must be accepted. Oh, oh, oh. Silent survey. Gosh, you guys. All right, I see how it is. You guys are not going to follow the rules. Okay, okay. I'm ready for you. So before you quickly answer that question as true or false in your mind, we worry every day about countless things. Am I right? We worry about money. We worry about food. We worry about our health. We worry about our relationships. We worry about our marriages. We worry about our kids. We worry about our jobs. We worry about our future. Man, there's so much to worry about. Heck, listen. I was actually worried just this morning that once you guys found out that I was the one speaking today, that you might not show up. (laughs) Listen, 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 listen. And then I was thinking, then they're probably worried about the state of our church, and they were probably saying to themselves, oh, no, they're going to have that bearded guy again. Who likes to change his voice when he preaches? I'm starting to get concerned. I don't know if I like that. So I was worried that you were worried. But here we are. Here we are. I find it fascinating as I was researching and preparing for today um, that the Barner Research Group partnered with World Vision, which happens to be the largest child-focused humanitarian organization in the world, and they conducted a first-of-its-kind study where they interviewed 15,000 people ages 18 to 35 in 25 countries in nine different languages to produce this report that they called The Connected Generation. And in this report, they asked those who were interviewed, to paint a portrait of their emotions. And the image that was captured of the generation that took this survey, that was interviewed by these interviewers, was a generation gripped with worry, anxiety, uncertainty about the future, fear of failure, amongst other concerns. This generation that was surveyed showed that 40% of them were crippled with worry. 40%. 
That's a lot. Of the 15,000, that's 6,000, said that the emotion that they wrestled with the most was worry. And you and I both know that's not limited to 18 and 35-year-olds. Am I right? It's not. But here, let me share with you another statement or a phrase, I should say, and it's this. Do not worry. Jesus said that. In fact, Jesus said this five times within nine verses, all in Matthew chapter 6. And we know that repetition means emphasis, it means importance. And yet Jesus went on and said, do not worry. And so as followers of Jesus Christ, we must understand, we must know, we must believe that if Christ said these words, these words in and of themselves carry a power within them to fulfill said words. See, Jesus, he never releases a word into the world that doesn't have the power within it to fulfill that which he sent it out to do. This is Jesus. And so if Jesus said, do not worry, we have to settle it in our heart. Well, if that's the case, if Jesus said, do not worry, then I don't have to worry. I can go on without worrying. I can face this thing, and I can face that thing, and I can handle this thing, and I can handle that thing because Jesus said, do not worry. And if we can do all of these things because Jesus has spoken it, then it makes us reflect on that statement that we looked at and think to ourselves, then why is it that though we say that statement is false, our actions say otherwise? And so, Jesus made the reality possible. Are you with me? The reality of not worrying possible, and that's a reality that we're going to choose to live in today. Amen? Amen? Here is our big idea for our time together. Worry is built on fear. Peace is built on love. Again, worry is built on fear. Peace is built on love. And I need you to know, hear me, everybody listen up, okay? Everybody lean in at the end of your seat, right? Turn your head to the side if one ear is better than the other. <laughs> I need you to know that we serve the Prince of Peace. We are joint heirs with the Prince of Peace. So I'm here to stir your faith. I'm here to stir my faith to build and live in peace regardless of what we're facing, to walk out the word that Jesus has spoken to us. You see, I know that some of you are facing real battles today. I know that some of you are facing real pain today. I know that some of you are facing real trouble, real concerns. You're facing them Today, here and now, you walked in with them. 
And I'm here to tell you, friends, I have good news. I have good news, right? Even though that the onslaught of life's worry has come against you, even though worries are raging against you, you can stand firmly in the place of peace and believe God for the impossible. And so if you're with me, let's dive in, yes? The title of my message for today is When Worry Surrounds You. When Worry Surrounds You. We're going to be reading out of 2 Chronicles chapter 20, mostly. It's like a little asterisk, right? Because you guys know me. If you guys were already pulled our notes up on the Bible app, you were like, Four strokes, five strokes, six strokes, seven strokes. Good grief, we're going to be here all day. You're welcome. (laughs) But before we jump in, let me pray, and then we'll get started. Father, in Jesus' name, we're here for you. Nothing else. For you. So we open up your word now. And we ask, Holy Spirit, speak to us. You see us exactly as we ought to be seen. You know the inner parts of our hearts and our minds. And nothing is hidden from you. So I pray, we pray, that you would speak for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so... The book of Chronicles, let me give you a little context, a little background, because that's how I like to roll. The book of Chronicles is the first book you come to if you're reading the Bible in a year all the way through, after reading 1 and 2 Samuel, after reading 1 and 2 Kings, where you say to yourself, wait a minute, I've already read this stuff already. What gives? And you would be partially right. Chronicles does share similar stories that you find in 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Samuel, but it supplements those stories in very rich and powerful ways. And 2nd Chronicles specifically, okay, 2nd Chronicles specifically, specializes in having this sharp and encouraging focus on the Davidic lineage, the Davidic monarchy, because the author is trying to convey the chronicler is trying to convey that Israel's hope as a nation, Israel's life as a nation, lies therein, in the Davidic monarchy. And as with other Old Testament books, Chronicles juxtaposes the benefits of seeking God to the drawbacks of forsaking God. And it juxtaposes how one produces blessing in various forms and how the other produces punishment in various forms. But how many of you are thankful for the New Testament? Come on, somebody. Right? In the New Testament, right, we have Jesus being perfectly obedient to God, being perfect, perfectly seeking out God because Jesus was God, and because of him, in him, we get to experience all the blessings of God because our faith is in him alone. Right? By faith alone, by grace alone, as revealed by Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. And everybody said, Amen. Solas. 
So at this point in Israel's ancient history, it's the 10th century BC, before Christ. I don't do that academia BCE stuff. Before common era, no thanks. Before Christ. So 10th century BC, this is a thousand years before Jesus showed up on the scene. And we see this, Solomon, King Solomon, right? King David's son, he completes the building of the temple in Jerusalem, right? He is king over a united Israel, just as his dad, King David, was, just as King Saul was before King David, right? And Solomon, he ruled and reigned for about 40 years. But in the latter years of his reign, he was disobedient to God. And after his death, God promised that he would rip the kingdom from Solomon. And so after Solomon's death, the nation of Israel gets split into two. The the, the kingdom of Israel in the north with ten tribes of Israel. And the kingdom of Judah in the south with the other three. Third. 13, guys, 13. 13, 13 tribes of Israel. You got to remember that Papa Jacob, before uh, he passed away, Israel, right? He didn't bless Joseph. He blessed his two sons. You remember this? Ephraim and Manasseh. He did this. And then he was like, no, dad, dad, this way. No, this way. Do you guys remember? Ephraim and Manasseh. Manasseh. So there's 13 tribes of Israel. They all, 12 of them were all around the tabernacle, and the Levi, the tribe of Levi, was closest to the tabernacle because they were the ones that attended to the tabernacle. Fun fact for you. You're welcome. 13 tribes. All right, so Judah in the south, the kingdom of Judah in the south, the kingdom of Israel in the north, and generally speaking, as you're reading through these Old Testament books, you get this idea that the kings of the northern kingdom were evil. Right? They were just bad. They disobeyed God, and they led the people in idolatrous worship. Right? And on the other hand, generally speaking, okay, keyword, generally speaking, the kings of the southern kingdom of Judah are looked at as good kings, despite, you know, some failings here and there. And one of those kings was King Jehoshaphat. Now, let me step back here. The kings in the, the, the kingdom of Israel, they rule for about 200 years, right, before the Assyrian invasion. And the kings of the kingdom of Judah ruled down there for about 350 plus years before the Babylonian invasion, okay? And in the kingdom of Judah, there was a king named Jehoshaphat, King Jehoshaphat of the kingdom of Judah. You can find his story in 2 Chronicles chapter 17 through 21. So let's dig into King Jehoshaphat, shall we? Let's do this. So I'm going to put up a reference here, and the scriptures will be on the screen. I'm going to read it from right here. Okay, here we go. I can see, I think. All right. 2 Chronicles chapter 17, beginning in verse 1, this is what the Bible says. Then Jehoshaphat, Asa's son, became the next king. He strengthened Judah to stand against any attack from Israel. He stationed troops in all the fortified towns of Judah, and he assigned additional garrisons to the land of Judah and to the towns of Ephraim that his father Asa had captured. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he followed the example of his father's early years and did not worship the images of Baal. He sought his father's God. 
and obeyed his commands instead of following the evil practices of the kingdom of Israel. So the Lord established Jehoshaphat's control over the kingdom of Judah. All the people of Judah brought gifts to Jehoshaphat, so he became very wealthy and highly esteemed. He was deeply committed to the ways of the Lord. He removed the pagan shrines and Asherah poles from Judah. In the third year of his reign, Jehoshaphat sent his officials to teach in all the towns of Judah. Jump into verse 9. They took copies of the book of the law of the Lord and traveled around through all of the towns of Judah teaching the people. Then the fear of the Lord fell over all the surrounding kingdoms so that no, none of them wanted to declare war on Jehoshaphat. Pretty cool, huh? Off to a great start. So because Jehoshaphat sought and obeyed God, things were going incredibly well for him. He was highly esteemed and super rich. The kingdom of Judah was so powerful under Jehoshaphat that even the Philistines, you guys remember them? The Philistines showered Jehoshaphat with gifts, thousands of them, with gifts of rams and goats. Nothing says you've arrived like receiving gifts of rams and goats. Impressive. But then, in my opinion, Jehoshaphat's head got a little too big, right? Thinking he had that swagger, right? Thinking he had that swagger. We read this in 2 Chronicles chapter 18, verse 1. Jehoshaphat enjoyed great riches and high esteem, and he made an alliance with Ahab of Israel by having his son marry Ahab's daughter. All right, guys, listen. Now, this sounds like a very strategic, smart peace deal, considering that the two kingdoms had a history of warring against another, warring against one another for over 60 plus years. you kind of had to also know who King Ahab is. Mm, let's go there. Let's go there. Here's a summary or a snippet of King Ahab. But Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight, even more than any of the kings before him. Oof, heavy, heavy, heavy words. And that's just a quick one-sentence snapshot of King Ahab. If this doesn't settle it for you, I am here to help. I went out of my way, and I produced a list of accolades for our senor, King Ahab. <laughs> so if you will indulge me, the list of accolades for King Ahab include... Marrying Jezebel, the Phoenician princess, daughter of the Phoenician king, King Ethbaal. Heeding the counsel of Jezebel, in effect, allowing her to co-lead the kingdom of Israel, despite her pure hatred for the Israelites. <laughs> Instituting the false and idolatrous worship of the pagan demon gods, Baal and Asherah. Resisting God and his prophet Elijah despite incredible displays of power. 
And, as if that wasn't enough, murdering an innocent man named Naboth who didn't want to sell his garden to him? What in the world? This is King Ahab. One more time. First Kings 21-25, no one else so completely sold himself to what was evil in the Lord's sight as Ahab. This guy was no bueno. So, a few years later, right, after the alliance, the marriage alliance, Jehoshaphat goes to visit Ahab, okay? And Ahab throws a big old feast for Jehoshaphat. I mean, we're talking like not a block party or a citywide party. We're talking like the entire nation. Like it was like a county party, right? All 300 Alachua County residents just showed up. Everybody's walking around with lamb legs and goat cheese. Like it was just like the place to be, right? And at this feast, at this feast, Ahab, uh-huh, sneaky Ahab, he proposed to King Jehoshaphat, that they join their military forces together to take the city of Ramoth-Gilead. Let's go ahead and listen in on their conversation. Oh, we missed the scripture, but that's okay. I'm going to read it to you. Second Chronicles chapter 18, verse 3 and 4. This is them having that conversation. Will you go with me to Ramoth Gilead? King Ahab of Israel asked King Jehoshaphat of Judah. Jehoshaphat replied, Why, of course, you and I are as one, and my troops are your troops. We will certainly join you in battle. Then Jehoshaphat pulled out a Snickers bar. And in a momentary pause of reflection and possible conviction, added these words. But first, let's find out what the Lord says. And what unfolds over the next two chapters is absolutely wild. And I'm going to give you a summary of it. Can I do that? All right. So Ahab. After Jehoshaphat asked the question, is there a prophet of the Lord that we can you know, ask? Double check here, right, right, right? Ahab calls 400 prophets. He calls 400 prophets, and they all pile in before the two kings. And King Ahab asks, should we go to war? And all of them are like, yes, go to war. God is going to give you the victory. Right? That must have been an absolute spectacle. 400 prophets doing this. And oddly enough, right, it doesn't land for Jehoshaphat. It doesn't land for him. And so he asks again, is there a prophet of the Lord here, right? And then so bizarre, Ahab says yes. Makes no sense. He says yes. And he says, oh. You know, holding his goblet with goat grease hanging off his beard. Yes. There is this one guy. His name is Micaiah. Micaiah is probably how he said it. But then he leans over to Jehoshaphat and he tells him, hey, but I hate him. I hate him. Because he never prophesied anything but trouble for me. 
So, okay? So then Ahab tells a messenger to go get Micaiah, who's obviously not at the party. And the messenger, he goes, gets, you know, little man Micaiah, and he threatens him. He threatens him. He's like, all right, all right, listen, listen here. We're having a good time. Okay? Everybody's happy. Everybody's got a goat leg. Okay? Everybody's in there, right? Are you listening? Yeah, up, look up here. Everybody is prophesying victory for King Ahab. And you know what? You need to say the same thing. You understand? You don't want there to be problems. You understand me? So just go in there, right? Say what you got to say and let the party continue. Capiche? So he gets threatened. And Micaiah, you know, he's like, well, I only say what the Lord tells me to say. But funny enough, right? Like as if this is not a spectacle already, right? Micaiah walks in before the two kings and King Ahab asks him, hey, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead? And Micaiah responds sarcastically. <laughs> Talk about bold, right? Uh, yeah, 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 you should totally go. You should, listen, you should totally go. You're, listen, you're going to win. You're going to win. W-I-N, you're going to win. Right? And oddly enough, King Ahab doesn't believe him. And he says, how many times do I got to demand that you only speak the words of the Lord to me? Wait, what did you just say? <laughs> and so then Micah provides the word of the Lord. And he says, the sheep of Israel will be scattered on the mountain like sheep without a shepherd because the shepherd will be no more. Bomb drop. And King Jehoshaphat I mean, sorry, King Ahab leans over to King Jehoshaphat. See, he's always prophesied trouble for me. But that wasn't where Micaiah was done, right? Micaiah asserts himself and continues saying what he was about to say, and he provides this vision of doom. Oh, my gosh. Micaiah recounts a vision that the Lord gave him where the Lord was high and lifted up and seated on a throne, and all the armies of heaven were around him on his left and on his right. And then the Lord said, Who will entice King Ahab to go into Ramoth-Gilead so that he can be killed? And they just start swapping ideas. People suggest this, someone suggests this, and then a spirit steps up and says, Lord, I have an idea. And the Lord says, okay, let's hear it. And the Spirit says, how about this, guys? How about I go down there, right? And I entice all of Ahab's prophets to speak lies. I will be a lying spirit in their mouths. And then the Lord says, I like it. Go ahead, go ahead and do it. Yep, you're going to be successful at it. Go ahead and go. And then Micah concludes this vision of doom by saying, so you see, King Ahab, 
The Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouths of your prophets because the Lord has pronounced your doom. You could hear a pin drop. Actually, you could probably hear some boots walking over to Micaiah. A prophet, lead prophet, Zedekiah, walks over to him. Whack! Slaps him. Slaps Micaiah right upside the head. And King Ahab gets all angry and has Micaiah imprisoned, forsaking the warning of the Lord. And so the next day, King Ahab and King Jehoshaphat, they go to war, right? They go to war against Ramoth Gilead. And as if the words of Micaiah landed, look at this weird twist. King Ahab decides to disguise himself in the battle. How weird. He disguises himself. And as, as, as if that wasn't weird enough, right, he's disguised like a regular soldier he convinces King Jehoshaphat to stay in his royal robes. What? King Jehoshaphat's discernment is out the window, people. Right? And then while they're in battle, guess who gets chased? King Jehoshaphat. King Jehoshaphat. The Aramean army, they're chasing and they think it's King Ahab. And King Jehoshaphat's crying out to the Lord, Lord, rescue me. And then the Lord intervenes and he causes those who are chasing him to see that it wasn't King Ahab. So they turn away and Jehoshaphat is spared, right? But then this random arrow flies through the air and lands in King Ahab's chest. Right between the armor plates. And it's a deadly wound. And his servant in his chariot ride further away from the battle. And then he slumps in his chariot as he's watching the Aramean army defeat his army. And the Bible says that he dies as the sun is setting. And so Jehoshaphat escapes. He goes back home to Jerusalem, and it's time to get right to business. Right to business. Jehu, the prophet, meets King Jehoshaphat, and he lets him know that the Lord is angry with him, right? God is displeased because of Jehoshaphat's alliance with King Ahab. But because he's done some good things, God decides to delay judgment against Jehoshaphat. And that's what brings us to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. And so we see in chapter 20 that Jehoshaphat's kind of going about daily business, right? He's installing some judges. He's installing some, some priests in different places. But then in chapter 20, the word comes. Uh-oh. Messengers come to tell him that a vast army is coming. And by vast, I mean vast. Not just one army, but three armies. The Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Meonites. They're all on their way to attack Judah. They were so big they would have easily annihilated King Jehoshaphat and all of Judah. They're coming. They're not far away either, right? They're close. 
They're coming for either, either the riches of the kingdom of Judah or maybe the blinged out temple in Jerusalem. Or maybe they've heard that King Jehoshaphat has displeased God and they think that that might work in their favor. But they're coming. And there's really no time to get ready. And so King Jehoshaphat and Judah are all worried and afraid. Worried and afraid. And you're probably sitting there, Pastor Hector, <laughs> why are you telling us this crazy story? It's a good question. <laughs> because this is our brains on worry. This is our brain. This is our brain on worry. Like none of us could have imagined a story like this. You see, when we worry, when worry seeps into our imaginations, our imaginations run wild. They run wild. They start thinking, man, I got to go have, you know, yeah, I got to talk to that person, but I got to talk to them after lunch, but I hope it's not Taco Bell because if they had Taco Bell, then it's not going to be good. So if they had pizza, then I can approach the conversation this way and I can handle it this way. But if they had pepperoni, wait a minute, that's going to, so your imagination is running wild. You're worried about your health, about your finances, about relationships. But did you know that 85 to 90 percent of that which we worry about actually never happens. That's huge. 80 to 95%. So things get to be a little bit crazy when we worry. And today we're going to talk about when worry surrounds you like an army. Like the army that surrounded Jehoshaphat. If someone were to take worry and like, put it in a capsule and then make a lot of little capsules and then put it in a bottle, we would all be guilty of taking those pills. Worry is not anxiety. And anxiety is not worry. They are two completely different things. They're like two vines that grow out of the same root of fear. The best definition that I found was worry is best described as the thinking part of anxiety. Anxiety can manifest itself in our physical well-being. You can worry yourself sick. And so it's crazy stories like this one in Chronicles, right, that our imaginations run with when we get concerned or anxious about something. Listen to these few things that I learned. I learned that some people believe worrying is a coping mechanism. It's not. I learned that some people believe it's controllable. I mean, uncontrollable. And it actually is. You can control worry. And I learned that some people believe suppressing worry will make it go away. When in fact, it has the opposite effect and could potentially make it worse. So instead, the emotion needs to be dug up and addressed so that the light and love of Christ can be shown on the real issue and the truth of God's word needs to shine on that issue so that worry can be put into its proper place. So again, our big idea is worry is built on fear. Peace is built on love. 
So we are going to take a look at Jehoshaphat's response to the approaching army. And we're going to look at what he did, and we're going to use them as peace-building actions that we can apply to our lives. But you have to know that the peace that we're about to build is built on love. So this is the foundation of our time. 1 John 4, verse 15 to 18. It says, All who declare that Jesus is the Son of God and have God living in them, and they live in God. Wait, did I read that right? Yeah. Yep. Okay, sorry. I'll, I'll start again. All who declare that Jesus is the Son of God and have God living in them, and they live in God. We know how much God loves us, and we have put our trust in his love. God is love, and all who live in love live in God. And God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. So if worry is built on fear, love will eradicate it. Amen? So how do we build on love and arrive at peace? How do we build on love and arrive at peace? So we're going to take a look at Jehoshaphat's response. Now, I have taken the liberty. I haven't trademarked it yet, but many of you might be familiar with um, the popular uh, artificial intelligence software called ChatGPT. Yep. This is not to be confused with that I have developed a supernatural software that I am providing for you today as spiritual software that I hope you download into your mental hardware, and I have affectionately called it JFAT PGT. <laughs> JFAT PGT. Our boy Jehoshaphat, JFAT, <laughs> is going to show us three things that we can apply to our lives to handle worry. The P in PGT is prayer. Let's take a look at how Jehoshaphat responded upon hearing the news of the approaching worry army. 2 Chronicles 20, verse 5 and 6 says, Jehoshaphat stood before the community of Judah and Jerusalem in front of the new courtyard at the temple of the Lord. He prayed. He prayed. Friends, if you don't hear anything else from me today, I, hope you pray, I, I pray that you hear this. When worry rises its ugly head in your life, respond with prayer. Almost immediately, respond with prayer. We're all in battle with different worries of all kinds. When it rears its ugly head, respond immediately with prayer. I'll leave that there. But when we look at Jehoshaphat's prayer, there's actually a couple of things. There's some layers in there that we can actually learn from Jehoshaphat's prayer. And the first thing is this, pray in confidence. Pray in confidence. When you pray about your worry, pray in confidence. This is what it says in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 6 and 12. He, being Jehoshaphat, prayed, O Lord, God of our ancestors, you alone are the God who is in heaven. 
You are ruler of all the kingdoms of the earth. You are powerful and mighty. No one can stand against you. Oh, our God, won't you stop them? We are powerless against this mighty army that is about to attack us. We do not know what to do, but we are looking to you for help. Pray in confidence. When you approach God, you must approach him knowing who he is. You got to approach him knowing who he is because he is God. He has given us hundreds of times above and beyond our faith, but nevertheless, nevertheless, nevertheless. His minimum rule, if you read the stories of Jesus in the New Testament, is according to your faith, let it be done to you. He says that multiple times while he's healing blind people and healing sick people. According to your faith, let it be done to you. Therefore, in times of trouble, when you are troubled, when you ask God for help, ask believing that he is able to give it and ask expecting that he will. I'm going to say that again. When you are faced with trouble, ask God believing he is able to give it to you and expecting that he will. From there, listen very carefully, from there, as you have prayed in confidence, from there, you can trust him with whatever the outcome. You can trust him with whatever the outcome. You do your part and you trust God to do his part. So don't allow worries and doubts to drain the strength out from your soul. No matter how difficult, no matter how difficult your trial is, seek God in prayer. Seek God in prayer, believing he is who he says he is and understanding who it is that you're talking to. Amen? Here's another thing that we learned from Jehoshaphat's prayer. Pray in remembrance. Pray in remembrance. When you're praying about your worry and you're approaching God, recognizing who he is, and you're approaching him in confidence, right? Also, remember, uh, bring remembrance into your prayer. Look at what Jehoshaphat says. Oh, oh, our God, did you not drive out those who lived in this land when your people Israel arrived? And did you not give this land forever to the descendants of your friend Abraham? Your people settled here and built this temple to honor your name. They said, whenever we are faced with any calamities such as war, plague, or famine, we can come to stand in your presence before this temple where your name is honored. We can cry out to you to save us, and you will hear us and rescue us. Powerful, powerful words. So listen, fam, when you're praying, recall who he was and what he did in the yesterday, even if you can't see the comforts that he's showing you in the today. Remember him. Remember the truth. Remember the truth. God has been gracious to you. Can you describe how gracious God has been to you? God has been merciful to you. Can you describe how merciful God has been to you? 
God has been faithful to you. Can you describe how faithful God has been to you? Listen, if God has helped you a thousand times, if God has helped you a thousand times, you need to remember them and trust them. And will you trust him for number 1,001? God is worth remembering. God is worth remembering because remembering him in the yesterday will help us move in the today. It'll help us. So as you pray to God, help pray by recalling the past. This is what Psalm 77 says. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? That's what we need to say to every worry that we face. God is great. There is nothing greater than our God. Moving on to the G in JFAT PGT, gratitude. Gratitude. This is uh, quite a few verses, so here's the reference. I'll read it to you from here. As all the men of Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, wives, and children, the Spirit of the Lord came upon one of the men standing there. His name was Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Mataniah, a Levite who was a descendant of Asaph. He said, listen, all you people of Judah and Jerusalem. Listen, King Jehoshaphat. This is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid. Don't be discouraged by this mighty army, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow, march out against them. You will find them coming up through the ascent of Ziz at the end of the valley that opens into the wilderness of Jeruel. But you will not even need to fight. Take your positions. Then stand still and watch the Lord's victory. He is with you, O people of Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid or discouraged. Go out against them tomorrow, for the Lord is with you. Then King Jehoshaphat bowed low with his face to the ground. And all the people of Judah and Jerusalem did the same, worshiping the Lord. Then the Levites from the clans of Kohath and Korah stood to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud shout. There's so much in there. But here's one thing I want to draw your attention to. Be grateful for spirit-filled friends. Be grateful for spirit-filled friends. Hear me, church. If you don't have a spirit-filled friend, it's high time that you get yourself a spirit-filled friend. In addition, you should look to be a spirit friend yourself. A spirit-filled friend yourself. It just causes so much gratitude to rise up to God. I mean, look at what Jehoshaphat did, right? He, he didn't, upon hearing the Spirit of the Lord come upon Jehaziel, he didn't get all huffy-puffy. 
He didn't get all jealous saying, wait a minute. Why didn't the Lord speak through me? He did not respond that way. No, Jehoshaphat was grateful to the point of worshiping God. He bowed low to the earth and he put his face in the ground in showing in a display of gratitude to God, in a display of worship. We all need spirit-filled friends. Let's put everything else aside and keep first things the first. Let's keep our priorities in order. Being a spirit-filled friend is absolutely key to living an obedient and faithful life unto God. Okay, one more. Be grateful for now and for later. Okay? Be grateful for now, as Jehoshaphat was when he heard Jehaziel speak. But also be grateful for later. Look at what it says here. After consulting the people, the king appointed singers, right? So Jehoshaphat and Judah, they're on the way to meet this enemy army. And before they crest the hill, the king appointed singers to walk ahead of the army. Singers. Yeah, you read that right, singers. Singing to the Lord and praising him for his holy splendor. And this is what they sang. Give thanks to the Lord. I was going to sing it, but I wanted to spare you. Give thanks to the Lord. His faithful love endures forever. They haven't even experienced what's about to happen, but they're expressing gratitude for it. His love was enduring in the past, right? We saw that. And it will be enduring in the future. So we have to give thanks to God for what he's doing here and now, but also we have to give thanks to God for what he's going to do. Listen, church, thanksgiving for the past is sweet. But thanksgiving for the future is even sweeter. It's even sweeter. Last letter in JFAT PGT coming to a store near you. T stands for trust. Let's read this verse here. Verse 20. Early the next morning, the army of Judah went. Out into the wilderness of Tekoa, on the way Jehoshaphat stopped and said, Listen to me, all you people of Judah and Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be able to stand firm. Believe in his prophets, and you will succeed. You have to imagine the level of trust that Jehoshaphat and the people of Judah were walking in to act upon God's word. You have to remember, they were going up, a, up against a tri-nation army. Not just one nation, three of them. This was a horde of soldiers who were ready and wanting to do violence against the kingdom of Judah, violence against King Jehoshaphat, and had they descended on them, they would have annihilated all the people of Judah. Yet, they stood firm, 
and they went. <laughs> they went and they stood firm because they trusted God's word. Listen, sometimes God's instructions to us, sometimes it don't make no sense. Sometimes it don't make no sense. But our responsibility is to march to the drum of obedience. March to the drum of obedience. March and sing, stand firm and go. We are called to act on what God has spoken. I know I'm in a little bit of overtime, but I hope you guys are good with it. So acting on what God has spoken demonstrates trust. I recently taught on the Wednesday nights in February on Ephesians chapter 1. Sorry, that was an inside joke in my brain. Right? So in understanding the difficulty of life, the suffering that we often experience, the hardships that we endure, there's something powerful in Paul's prayer to the Ephesians that I believe every believer needs to know deep down to their core, to boldly act upon their trust in God. And we find that part in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19. Paul's praying, and he prays this. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us. I pray that you would understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us. Situations in life can be really, really hard. Relationships can be seriously, seriously strained. And financial situations can be extremely stressful. But hear me, friends, no matter what, and I say no matter what, no matter what you see with your eyes or experience in your heart, you need to understand and trust that there is this pulsating power waiting to be released in you and through you to the glory of God. I mean, let's, let's look at what happened for Jehoshaphat and Judah. At the very moment they began, at the very moment they began to sing and give praise to the Lord, I mean give praise, the Lord caused the armies of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir to start fighting against themselves. <laughs> Tell me God ain't God. They started fighting against themselves. Yeah, that's incredible. The moment they began, they probably weren't even there just yet. They started to fight amongst themselves. The Lord caused that. Let's go. Let's go, Team Jesus. And then a few verses down, so when the army of Judah arrived at the lookout point in the wilderness, all they saw were dead bodies lying on the ground as far as they could see. Not a single one of the enemy had escaped. King Jehoshaphat, 
And his men went out to gather the plunder. They found vast amounts of equipment, clothing, and other valuables, more than they could carry. There was so much plunder that it took them three days just to collect it all. Come on. This is what happens when you trust God. Things like this happen in our lives when we step out in faith and trust God. God can do exceedingly abundantly above everything that you ask or think. Church, hear me. You need to believe it. So trusting in God is never going to backfire. It's never going to backfire. You step out and what God has spoken and you trust it, it's not going to backfire. You see... Trust is a commodity of the heart. And it's only given to someone or something that proves itself trustworthy. Right? In other words, I can only trust you as much as I believe that you are trustworthy. So here's God's trustworthiness. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 9. Understand therefore that the Lord your God is indeed God. He is the faithful God who keeps his covenant for a thousand generations and lavishes his unfailing love on those who love him and obey his commands. We serve a God who's perfectly trustworthy. And last thought under T is cast your worries before God. We've been praying. We are grateful. We are trusting God. And now we're going to act on casting our worries before God. Here's what it says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. Give all your worries and cares to God. For He cares. He cares. He cares about you. This is the words of Isaiah. The Lord speaks and says, Don't be afraid, for I am with you. Don't be discouraged. For I am your God, I will strengthen you and help you. I will hold you up with my victorious right hand. So worry is built on fear, but peace is built on love. And my prayer today is that I've equipped you, that you've been equipped with the tools to build peace in your life. When the army of worry comes against you, stand upon the love that God has shown and displayed to you, and represent them. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information about our church, visit therockonline.org.